Hello, this is Jane Sigford, bringing you views and voice above the noise. Hosted by MASA Minnesota Association of School Administrators, a podcast that shares the good things that are happening in education across Minnesota. Today's podcast is an interview with Dr. Joe Gothard, Superintendent of St. Paul Public Schools. As with previous podcasts, several themes emerge during the interview. You will hear Dr. Gothard demonstrating his emphasis on relationships with all members of the community. Relationships are built upon the many skills of communication, such as intentional listening, responding to what he hears, building trust, and being intentional about what and how things are said. Another theme is the emphasis on the many facets of equity work in the district. There are several approaches that will be highlighted in the interview. Another focus was on student learning, which was really highlighted in the district strategic plan, which is purposefully named SPPS Achieves. More on each theme will come throughout the podcast. St. Paul Public Schools is the second largest district in the state with around 36,000 students, 6,000 staff members, including 3,000 teachers. Let's hear how Dr. Gothard came to be the superintendent. I was uh, an educator for 18 years in my home district, Madison Metropolitan School District in, in Wisconsin, and had a, the pleasure of having many great leaders around me who supported me, encouraged me, and pushed me to continue to seek leadership positions, you know, through the principalship, district administration. And I came to a time in, in Madison where in 2012 I applied for the superintendent position, was not selected, and thought with the age of my children at home that it was a good time for me to expand my horizons and look for that first superintendent position. My superintendent mentor in Madison, Art Rainwater, remains a great friend. At the time, he told me that the ideal first district for a superintendent candidate like me was 10,000 students. So being the good listener I am, a rule follower I am, I listened to him and applied for the superintendent position in, in three districts around the country that were all 10,000 students. As it turns out, Burnsville, Minnesota was the first to call was the first up in the interview process and the first to offer me a position. So I accepted in spring of 2013 and, and started here in Minnesota. Did you know where Burnsville was? I had only heard of Burnsville because I knew that there was a former Badger football player that was from Burnsville. That was honestly the only connection I had. Um, I had a lot to learn about the history of, of Burnsville. So knew very little about the district, but knew that they were struggling, challenging with the, their identity. It was interesting because it, it almost felt as though the, the folks in Burnsville in the community were responding to a very rapid change in diversity. And when you really look at uh, the number of students of color in that district, it, hadn't, it had been progressing over time, but to a point where it tipped, and it is a majority-minority school district. And that was what I felt very comfortable coming into, the challenge of bringing together a community around their beautifully diverse students and families was a, wasn't a challenge. It was a great opportunity. I served there through my first contract, and we had passed a very big bond referendum, and we're doing some great work in, in career and college readiness. This district just up the way, I noticed, was going through some turmoil here in St. Paul Public Schools. It isn't as though once that, that position was open, I raised my hand and said, oh, that's where I'm going. I was busy working and doing really good work in, in Burnsville and trying to earn a second contract there before it occurred to me that St. Paul Public Schools is really a good match for who I am. I'm a capital city kid, as I've said often, being born and raised in Madison and working there. There's a lot of similarities, a lot of differences, 
but it was something that uh, that grew on me as, as time went by. And of course, I had a number of people reach out to me and ask me to consider, but I didn't. I took my time. That search process, I believe, closed in March of 17, if I'm not mistaken, on or around, because I know it was in time with our, our national AASA conference. But I really wanted to take time, and I, and I truly wanted to be respectful of the folks in Burnsville, too. I did a lot of great work. I had built strong relationships with the board and, and with the community. So I knew that if I was going to apply, that one of two things was going to happen. Either I was going to get the job and people were going to be mad, or that I was not going to get the job and people would be mad that I applied for the job. So I knew that there was going to be, there potentially be some collateral damage, if you will, some relationship mending that I would have to do either way. So I decided with counsel of the greatest person in my life, my wife, that it was just a, a great time to attempt this, that it really spoke to me in terms of what the challenges were, what I thought I was going to experience coming to St. Paul. We'll talk about how some of that's been met and some has been very much surprise. The, the superintendent search process is really a two-day affair where your soul is searched by yourself and by plenty of others. Um, so just the exposure to who you are as an educator, what you can mean to a community, and trying to understand what a community needs and values in terms of the educational system uh, is a great process to go through. I'm, I'm thankful that I was offered the position and accepted the position, but that process is one that's very intense but, but gratifying in a strange way as well. St. Paul is a district rich in tradition and in what it offers. Right around 36,000 students uh, right now in, in St. Paul Public Schools. We operate 65 different campuses. We have a number of different programs. Uh, they're called Pathways in St. Paul. Uh, so students who can start in Spanish immersion, for example, there's a K through 12, pre-K through 12 articulation for students in a lot of our programs, aerospace being another one. We have different grade configurations as well. So there are some pre-K-5, there are some that are pre-K-8, some that are 6-8, some that are 6-12, and we have a small portfolio of alternative uh, schools as well. We also have a grade ECFE program, incredible community education, and I have to mention our adult basic education center and university that serves many students who have aged out of our system, who may be new to country, and who are valuable assets to our community and certainly our school district. The job of superintendent is challenging regardless of the size of district. I asked Dr. Gothard what he sees as his biggest challenge. Unlike some educators who leap toward the biggest challenge as not having sufficient funding, Dr. Gothard focused on the need for relationships and communication. I think the greatest challenge is the, the demand for my time, and not from my time, but in terms of everybody wants to make sure that the superintendent knows what they value, what they believe, what their challenges are. And that's something that's really personal to me. That's something that I really, truly try to embrace and, and try to understand. Uh, but there comes a time where you hear from the different stakeholders and you realize that, okay, now it's time for action. You have to prioritize you know, the different things that you hear. Try to put them in themes or in categories to try to act on. But at times it can feel incredibly overwhelming. Though I don't want to use funding as an excuse, funding does present some limitations in terms of what we're able to provide our families. And who am I to tell families what they should value in terms of their child's education or their young person they're caretaking, you know, what they expect and want for their education. So I think it's, it's that delicate balance of listening, being engaged, but not promising carefully walking that line because I think it's it's really hard as an executive leader when you go to a meeting 
and you nod your head and write some notes down. And when you leave, the people there may take that as he's going to do everything that we just said. It's finding how we engage with the community in terms of doing that. And staff is the same way. You know, 6,000 staff in St. Paul Public Schools, more than 3,000 teachers. I would like my job to help them be the very best teacher that they can be. St. Paul is the most diverse school district in Minnesota, with over 120 languages being spoken in the district. Equity work is an ever-present thread running throughout all of the work in the district. Here's where I give you a spoiler alert. In listening to Dr. Gothard talk about equity, there are several key points to note. Superimposed over all of it is the belief that equity work is about elevating, empowering, and engaging. Dr. Gothard will explain this in greater detail. What happens in classrooms is one key part of the work, but there are several other practices and beliefs that are at play, such as, one, that equity is based on relationships. Two, it's about breaking down barriers. Three, St. Paul Public Schools have created a unique standing equity committee made up of district leaders, staff members, parents, students, and community members. Four, the board has adopted a racial equity board policy, which has been replicated around the United States. Five, a group of students, teachers, and parents are designing an ethnic studies course to be offered school year 21-22. Six, they're looking at the structure of schooling, or what Larry Cuban of Stanford University calls the grammar of schooling, to see how the current structure of how we offer education may not fit our needs. Seven, they've reestablished a student engagement board to gather input from students. Let's hear from Joe as he explains all these ideas and initiatives. St. Paul Public Schools is the most diverse district in, in the state in terms of our makeup. I was at Harding High School this morning. The old high school principal and staff member always comes out of me. We had some downtime. I was waiting there for another event. At passing time for morning arrival, I just moseyed into the hallway and found a corner to kind of lean on and just like I did 15 years ago, sat and watched. What I saw, you can look at that on paper, you can look at percentages of students of color and various makeup groups, but to see our students arrive at the building together in one community, is it's really breathtaking to look at in that way. We're the largest Hmong population in the United States, so it's a, our Southeast Asian population overall is very proud to be part of St. Paul, to be valued and just this week, we had an incredible surge of Asian leadership in the, in the city, on the city council, and the school district. Our school board chair is a is a Como High School alumna, young woman who. It's, so it's just a really incredible time for us to look at not only who our students are in terms of a demographic that we file to the state, but in terms of how we're elevating, empowering, and engaging the voices and experiences of many who have been marginalized for a long time. With that come some incredible challenges. Some of the things that I've learned about equity is within the Asian community, for example, uh, there's incredible diversity. It isn't one size fits all for every Asian person because that is the ethnicity box that is checked on a form in our school district. And that's true for every different group, every group that we have in our district. Equity continues to be based on relationships in the age of personalized education, individualized education, more and more we're finding that the importance of learning and understanding what individual needs are for students and how can we program that into 
our everyday operations is really important. Race, language, culture plays a huge part of that. So for us, our equity work has been about continuing some of the work that, that's been done in the past, but also recognizing that when we look at the outcomes in the gaps that we have for some of our students, that it's time for us to do something new as well. And a few of the things that I've heard most consistently from our students is that we don't, students, don't feel represented in our curriculum. And that can mean a lot of things. That could mean the the, the books that are used and not seeing representatives from cultures, uh, either by pictures or in the narratives and the information that's presented. It could also mean that you have a, a representative group of teachers that look like our student body as well. It can mean that our students don't feel as though they're allowed to take courses that, they're, that they may want to because of their skin color. All this impacts the overall experiences of our students that leads to their ultimate outcomes. Breaking down some of those barriers is going to be the greatest work that we do. It's one thing to have high expectations for all students and say that this is an opportunity for all students, but we have to also have support for that as well. Because if we're going to break the cycle of marginalization in education, we can't just do it by opening doors. We have to do it by opening doors, pushing people through it, and also supporting them to great lengths and making sure that we're not setting anyone up to fail or to feel further marginalization. And I've seen that happen before. I've seen that happen in my education career where we feel good about opportunities that we uh, provide, but then we sit and watch somebody struggle miserably because there isn't ample support there as well. A lot of our out-of-school time programs, especially in the college and career preparation field, have figured this out, and they do a great job, whether it's Abbott College Possible, Genesis Works Twin Cities, uh, Breakthrough Twin Cities, uh, all are, are wonderful out-of-school time supports that get at exactly what I'm talking about. They're able to, to structure time outside of the school time. We know that students who experience more time in learning tend to do better, and when that can be structured outside of school time, we're seeing and we do see often results that are great. For us, uh, in August, our Board of Education passed a resolution for a standing equity committee. We are a committee of the whole. The way that we run our board meetings, so it's informal committees that come together for one meeting a month to report out on various topics. And I thought that our equity work needs the support of the board. It needs the transparency and openness to the community. And it needs to have a regular discipline schedule for how and what we're going to accomplish. We're about three meetings in. We started that as tri-chair led by myself, by our vice chair, Jean L. Foster, and by our assistant director of equity, Myla Pope. And I thought that too was a great opportunity for us to all have different leadership roles in our various capacities. And then we're working with a, a stakeholder group from the community. Are the teachers on this committee? Teachers, yes. other staff, students, some parents, professionals that have ties to the district that are working in equity or education spaces, higher ed and other places. Uh, so it's been great. And for me, I'm a believer in relationships. I'm a relational person. It's been great to meet new people for me. These are a lot of the folks I haven't met or haven't had a a chance to really learn and understand from. So I've really enjoyed that. My hope is that from that committee, we're, you know, we're in the early stages of getting to know each other and setting the course, but we have a regular opportunity and a regular cadence of bringing observations or data or problem areas in the district that have to do with equity to this committee for us to review and for us to focus on building recommendations that come before the board, whether it be policy, whether it be practice, whether it be a new focus area for us. 
Would this equity committee ever suggest things that were unique to different buildings that you would act on rather than, doesn't, does it have to be district-wide? I don't think it does. I think, in fact, it's a, it's a great question. I don't believe that in a district our size there is a one-size-fits-all equity equation, and there just isn't. Whether it's funding, whether it's PD, whether it's you know, just about anything you can do, the makeup of that building and the community is what should drive a lot of the activity that they go through. Now, there might be policies and parameters set by the district, but within that, there should be some flexibility. There, there most certainly should. And I also don't think that every building needs the same thing. Whether it's size, whether it's makeup, whether it's their pathway focus, there are going to be different and unique needs within those buildings. Again, I think it's more and more challenging in the scarcity of funding scenario that we find ourselves in. But to maximize the dollars and investments that we do make, we have to be flexible. Do you find that the structure and the courses and curriculum is based on a white middle class value system and some of that could change to meet some of these needs? I think it's the age old discussion that I feel like I've been having now for 20 years. We're living through the fourth industrial revolution, at least. When I think of the high school anyway, the high school experience, and I've talked about this many times, one of the things that we did in Burnsville when we started the creation of our vision for the future is I had our assistant to the superintendent compile the graduation requirements decade by decade starting in 1950. What I found, you know, and I did that to kind of check my own assumption. My assumption was that we haven't changed that much. What we learned is we haven't changed that much. Names have changed, gotten fancier with technological terms and things of that nature. But in terms of what we're asking to produce in high school, it hasn't changed that much. You know? And I also know this because we also hear from our higher ed partners that our students aren't ready. These are signals that we haven't done the requisite work to prepare our students for the current time that we're in. There's no single point blame for that. Uh, to me, it just should fuel and motivate us to look for how can we be a better match? How can we look to, to work within the confines of the state requirements and the budget and the schedule parameters that we have to make sure that we're finding a better match for our students. We're fortunate we do have great college career pathway partners. The challenging thing in St. Paul Public Schools is we have 12 different campuses that touch high school students. So we can't build one model and offer the same thing on all 12 sites. We just don't have the scale to do that. So we do have to make sure that we're offering geographically as many opportunities as we can so that our students can participate in them. Our teachers also do a great job of being as relevant as they know how. It's something that we have to continually work on. Another thing our students often say is, I don't feel seen in my classes. And that is something that can be very hard for, for teachers to hear. And I'm not saying it to be mean or to be critical. I'm saying it as it's a chance for us to do our, to our work better. And for me, what teachers would want out of that is time and some professional resources to do that. So a lot of our work and our strategic plan, current strategic plan is to embrace culturally relevant instruction and to find ways to do it better. Can you talk about the course that you're evolving? The ethnic studies work is something that if you look nationally for the last 10, 15, even longer in some states, has been a great source, at times contentious, but of students saying just what I'm repeating about our St. Paul students, that we want our history, we want our narrative taught, but also taught accurately. Those are two different things, because I think many times we feel as though because we've worked with students you know, from this culture or we've taught 
this area before that it's right. Our students will tell you that when they are able to experience a truly culturally relevant, in a meaningful way, that it's life-changing. We want to make sure that not only do we build a class, ethnic studies, that is able to incorporate different absent narratives into an experience for our students, but we want to make sure that we're taking a look at our other courses and that we can build culturally relevant learning opportunities into those as well. So while we're building a standalone class in ethnic studies that will be a survey class that will cover a number of different grade level? cultures and backgrounds, it'll be high school, ninth and 10th grade. We do continue to offer what we refer to as studies classes. So we do have long American studies as an elective class, but our students are looking for a comprehensive class that could turn into a mandatory class uh, or required class. You know, right now, I think uh, we're looking to put the class together uh, before we determine if we do make it required, what impact that would have on our master schedule overall. But I think it's important to know, too, that though that's a high school course, we're also looking at re- rewriting the curriculum in our middle school social studies courses as well to bring in many of the same elements. You know, while we're doing this overhaul at the high school level, uh, to me, it's a great time for us to look throughout our entire curriculum for how can we build this continuum of ethnic studies and awareness into into what we want our students to know and be able to do. Did you at one time say that you thought this might be uh, part of geography standards or it was you were hoping that that could happen? That's So our AP Human Geography class is a year long and the geography class is a semester long. So there's a little bit of inconsistency in our schedule right now for us to just pluck in something that we want to be required. So we'll have to work through that. I don't want that to stop us building the course. Our students are really excited about it. I should mention that that work came from, in 2017, Student Engagement Advancement Board was resurrected. So that's our our student leadership group, who are mainly juniors and seniors from around the district, um, advise the Board of Education. How many students? Oh, there's a good dozen. About a dozen who are on it. They from all the high schools? All, all different. I don't know if every high school has one. They go through a process, but it's certainly open to all all schools. But they've really brought a lot of passion to this in making sure that it's something that the board, board sees through and, and makes sure that the administration is going to implement. When I asked Dr. Gothard about his biggest learning so far, he offered another key memorable phrase. This is not solo work. So I've been at many positions in my home district. But when you're an assistant superintendent, there's a big difference in being the superintendent. When you're the superintendent in Burnsville, you can savage, and the superintendent in St. Paul Public Schools, big difference. So just that continual learning for me of how the many more layers, how to assemble a team, and not just assemble a team, but how to direct their duties, how to manage time, my own time, and help others manage theirs, and to make sure that we have identified focus areas that we can prioritize and develop plans and execute them. We get started on so much work and many times we don't even know if it's been effective or not. So the efficacy of being the superintendent of a district of this size and this complexity can be really hard in that way. I mean, there's the data that's gonna be measured every year, but in between those annual benchmarks, there has to be different progress monitoring that I use. And I say progress monitoring and it means a lot of different things. It could mean a one-to-one check-in with a direct report. It could mean, if we were successful or not, advancing an agenda item to the Board of Education. So there's many different things that I have to have a line of sight to and have a relationship with in terms of advancing our work. So I think that management of just the sheer size 
has been the biggest learning by far and making sure I have really good people around me who, who can help me. This, this is not solo work. Being a good superintendent requires being a good manager of resources, time, and people. In addition, a superintendent means being a learning leader and a leader of learning, the discussion of which have been the focus of previous podcasts on deeper learning and deeper teaching. A podcast on being a learning leader is still to come. It's as though the superintendent is the person who is an iconic model of teacher and coach. Dr. Gothard talks about that. I would say, you know, I've never lost my orientation of being a teacher and a coach. It's something that's very important to me and and something that uh, I continue to work on to develop. It might sound strange to be a a leader, a superintendent, and think that way, but I have to. I want to be the best teacher I can be, uh, the best coach that I can be. I mean, those are... Being a great teacher in a classroom, being a great coach on a field or on a court translates into being an excellent superintendent. To me, they're foundational to to my success. You know, the relationships and the working with a board and understanding budgets, those are all all the the outputs of hard work you do as a teacher, as a coach, as somebody who brings people together, as someone who sets agenda items and agendas to execute great work. I mean, that's what this is all about. Uh, so for me, the instructional leadership piece is really important, but also understanding that it's not me, the instructional leader. It's me being the leader of a team of instructional leaders. That's, and it's really gratifying. I've learned a lot from my colleagues, both those who I've hired here and, and those who have remained from, from their previous roles. As evidence of the emphasis on learning, Dr. Gothard has led the development of the strategic plan for the district, which is entitled SPPS Achieves. The title itself is illustrative of the focus. If one goes to the website for the district, one can see the strategic plan, which has five strategic focus areas, positive school and district culture, effective and culturally relevant instruction, program evaluation and resource allocation, college and career plans, family and community engagement. The values that are the underpinnings of these focus areas are achievement, communication, continuous improvement, collaboration, accountability, and inclusive culture, all of which have student learning as the goal. When asked what his accomplishments were so far, Dr. Gothard talked about survival, and then he was able to talk about the strategic plan. It's funny. Some some would say survival, you know, just <laughs> realizing that it's a really hard job, and, it, you know, that's a that bar is set really low. I've had challenges, and Challenges that are the same here, that were in Burnsville, that were in Madison, that are equally as challenging. But I would say here, the biggest success, you know, I think coming in and rallying this community around the support of a referendum, an operating referendum, was, was critical. At a time where there was rhetoric out there about people not being sure, who's this new person, what's the new plan, we're, we're overtaxed, our, our schools are not doing as well as we'd like them to do, why would we give more money? And yet this community time after time shows that it cares about our kids. I would say that that's not just people who are St. Paul Public Schools employees or parents. It's the community as a whole. People want St. Paul Public Schools to, to do great work. And it's really important to our, to our community. And I think the, what was it, 63% voters voting yes for a referendum was a, a great statement in that. Secondly, and related to that, was the launching of SPPS Achieves, our strategic plan. I wanted us to have a plan that focused on achievement. And the title of that plan, SPPS Achieves, 
I'll be honest, did not go through a vetting process to name it. I named it. I named it very intentionally, and I wanted achievement to be something that we think of when we think of St. Paul Public Schools, because that's why we exist. We exist to educate all children and to provide a free and appropriate education that our plan lays the foundation for us to do that. It is not the perfect plan that you think of when you think of what you might want your child to experience, but it is the foundation that will provide that experience. So it's been a little bit challenging in that way uh, because there are some people who might not, you know, they may have wanted more details in that plan, not understanding what it takes to keep the engine running and to build the kind of momentum that you need to execute some of the things that matter to them. An example of that is our middle school model work. We moved students out of our elementary schools about five, six, maybe seven years ago into middle school. And I don't know that we changed an awful lot. To have a junior high model and say now sixth graders are going there, I know that there's a big difference in a junior high and a middle school. I know there's been a great deal of research done on what a meaningful middle school experience means. And I wanted to make sure that if we call our buildings middle schools, that we're doing the right kind of work to structure ourselves and to support students in that way academically, socially, and emotionally so that they can thrive. To me, middle school is all about exposure, and it's about opportunity for self-direction, making sure that we bring to the forefront some of those really challenging situations, not ridicule our students for making mistakes, but help them problem-solve through how to, how to navigate some of the situations they might find themselves in. I'm proud of our staff. We do such a great job of, whether it's through restorative practices, whether it's through our advisory program, of trying to honor each individual student and making sure that they know every day that what they bring and how they bring it matters and can make a meaningful difference in their lives and the lives of others in the schools. So I think that those are the the kinds of things that I'm, I'm most proud of, that we do have some focused momentum uh, to fulfill SPPS Achieves. The ultimate goal is for us to improve a set of long-term student outcomes in that plan. And they're not all MCA tests and things of that nature. Those are important, but just a part of what we want to see students succeed in doing. It's a five-year plan, and we're in about year one and a half or so. So we're just getting started. Sounds like you're trying to impact long-term culture as opposed to just accomplishing a strategic plan goal. Yeah, it's interesting. Two concepts I think of, as you mentioned, culture, is that our number one strategic focus area was to create a positive school and district culture. And it was something that six months into my tenure here, for the life of me, I I just couldn't get over the fact of how much energy was wrapped up in people being dissatisfied with their experiences here in a number of different ways. It wasn't just aimed at one person. It wasn't just aimed at one school or one department. It was just aimed at, we're really tired. There's, there's been an absence of trust in many different areas and truthfully a culture of fear. And I stated that at a February 2018 board meeting that I find a culture of fear in any learning organization to be unacceptable. And therefore, it became our number one focus area. So we're doing a lot of intentional work in positive school and district culture. Just this week, I had all of our operational leaders in a session for three hours talked about customer service. We're building this within ourselves. You know, we don't have outside folks coming in telling us how to be better in terms of customer service. We're empowering staff. We're building agency within our staff. And we're allowing staff to lead each other 
in how we're doing this work. And it feels really good to be talking about some of those really important things. Yeah, it's a it's a good place. And I think people come up here too and their heads are somewhat on a swivel and I realize it's, it's really, it's a lot of fun up here. I mean, it really is. Uh, we're not here all that often because people are out and about and doing their work, but you have to have fun in doing this work. You have to to be collegial to do this work. You have to care about each other to do this work because as intense as this work is, every single person in an organization has personal things and a personal life too that they bring with them every day. So, it sounds um, like it's still energizing you though. Yeah. Oh, it definitely Not is. enervating you. No, no, it's, it, it's great. That's the positive school and district culture piece. You had mentioned one other thing. Oh, you, you had talked about trying to build in talking about change through culture. Absolutely. We talk a lot. One of our focus areas with our leaders this year has been the continuum of change. The definitions, you know, Marzano and others have done extensive work on, on change. And one of them has been through in the way that first and second order change are discussed. First order change, primary change is incremental. It's you know, we're going to adjust it, you know, this week or for next year, this is how we're going to do it. It's one of those things where you might do it for a week, maybe a month, and then you go right back to the way you always did things because that's our, that's our nature. That's our habit and our routine. Second order change is deep change. It's behavioral change. It's doing things in a different way that sticks, that begins to make meaningful and chart different progress. The real challenge when you do that is that there's some discomfort that's experienced. Because you're asking people to behave in a way that's different. And that's removing good or bad. It's just different. I think that in order for us to do that, we have to examine ourselves. We have to understand that the greatest, greatest differentiator for change is communication. I have to always look at how are we communicating. I can tell you decisions I've made here that I've communicated well have gone well. Decisions I made around here that I've communicated poorly have gone poorly. So it's something I'm very open and vulnerable with because I've understood how that's impacted the system when, you know, when it's been poorly or, or been communicated well. That's another big piece when it comes to change in, in culture is understanding that it's fine to make little adjustments here and there, but it's also very easy to revert back to the way we did things. It sounds like also, though, when you communicate well, you're building a sense of trust. And when you didn't communicate well, people have a tendency not to trust because they don't know all the facts. That's definitely true, and it isn't perfect. One of the other challenges with this job is, and it's with every stakeholder, is there are just some data, some information that you can't share. That's where, that's where that trust barrier sometimes is really hard to, to keep afloat. People sometimes think that urban, suburban, and rural districts are very different, and yet some people believe that they have many things in common. What are your ideas about this? I think a few things. A principal giant in my life was Milt McPike. Milt was the first black high school principal in Madison Metropolitan School District and Madison East High School. He was just an icon in the community. Just a great man, but he had a line where he would always say, every, every parent sends their best child to school every day. And repeated by lots of people, but I just remember the first time I heard that was from Milt. That's something all districts have in common. Every parent or caretaker is sending the very best child they have to school every day. There has been a lot of judgment and blame placed in education systems. The role of parent to school, you know, to all the other variables in communities about whose fault is it when student needs aren't being met or when students aren't achieving at the levels that the community believes are best. So I think 
That's the pressure to educate every child to their best ability in every community is really the same. Now, there may be different ground to make up based on the makeup of the district, but that's one thing I definitely think is the same. In terms of urban, suburban, rural, although Burnsville is more of a suburban district in proximity, the makeup of the district, being more than 50% students of color, a bunch of languages spoken by the student body there, and 65% qualified for free and reduced-price meals, it very much had many characteristics of what you would consider an urban district, just not the sheer size. I think the size is something that is challenging to to reform a high school. In Burnsville, there's one high school. In St. Paul, there's 12 that are touched. So just the scale for change is different in, in terms of some of the, the districts. In Minnesota, sadly, all of us are faced with gross underfunding. I mean, we just are. I mean, uh, St. Paul Public Schools has a $640 per student general funding gap. You know, if you look at inflation from 2003, if it would have kept up until now, that would be $25 million a year that we would be receiving in general funding. Every year we turn a deficit in our budget, and it's about how much? It's about that much. That piece is, is challenging. You know, in 1975, the Individual Disabilities Education Act was, was passed, free and appropriate education for all students. We will fund up to 40% with states, and here we are at maybe 10%. And it means that for a law that I agree in, and I was raised and brought up in an inclusive district, far as I can remember, I had children of all different abilities with me in my classrooms, not separate classrooms, in my classrooms. So it's something really personal to me, but when I have to use $42 million from our general fund to meet that mandate, there's winners and losers. Um, It just shouldn't be that way. English language learners as well make up around 31% or 30% of our students, and it is um, an area of pride for St. Paul Public Schools. We're looked at as a leading district in the country for serving EL students, especially our, our Hmong students. And again, uh, about $15 million of our general fund used to, to provide the services that our students deserve to have. That's the St. Paul story, but if you go to Warad, or if you go to you go to Stewartville, you go to Mankato, you go to Winona, you go to La Crescent, see, I know some of them, Duluth, you know, you would find a proportional story that would be very similar. Even students who show growth of en- en- enrollment because of that gap, growth isn't always a good thing. They're finding themselves, too, in similar positions in terms of budget decisions that they have to make. So clearly with ours, with those funding gaps and also a steady decline of students, it has been really hard here to keep our, you know, our funding cycle in a way to help us move forward. As I usually do, I ask the interviewee, for final words of wisdom or something that I hadn't asked them that they'd like to share with the rest of us. Here's what Joe had to say. I think one of the things that I've really enjoyed about coming to Minnesota, I think part of it is just being part of the metropolitan area too through EMSD and other organizations is there is a great peer network here. It's really fantastic. I'm sure some of our out-state folks in their different regions and different organizations feel it too, but I can't tell you enough how important my new peers here in Minnesota have been helping me understand and learn and and grow, and we're really there for each other. I learned that my first year when I had to make my first snow call, my forever snow guru will be Jane Behrens, retired superintendent in ISD 196. 
she and I became closer than close, more than just neighbors, because uh, she was the first person I talked to on many mornings, you know, 4.35 in the morning. But a lot of fun. That first year was the cold year where Governor Dayton shut down the schools, and I think we had six days off. And so it was really learned by fire or cold <laughs> for me. It was. And it was terrible. It's really been wonderful to, to learn and grow with, with a lot of my peers. And there's been a lot of changeover, too, as I look at my AMSD colleagues uh, just in the metro region terms of people who have come and gone or moved on to different positions like myself. We're really there for each other, and I I think with the Reimagine Minnesota work that's underway, it shows that if we didn't have that, we wouldn't be able to come together and try to create some collective efficacy around what we want want our students to experience. As you heard, Dr. Joe Gothard of St. Paul Public Schools is a leader who focuses on learning, whether it's with and for students or with and for adults. Relationships and a sense of trust are key points of the instructional and equity work which permeate St. Paul Public Schools. I leave you with just two of the quotable quotes that he shared. One, equity work is about elevating, empowering, and engaging. The second quote relates to the work of educators and administrators. This is not solo work. This is Jane Sigford signing off. My email is jlsigford at comcast.net. Thank you for listening.